This episode is brought to you by Rewind. Rewind offers e-commerce brands a solution that protects their stores against unexpected downtime. Rewind adds an undo button to your store, continually saving every change you make and backing up the critical data which runs your business. This episode is also brought to you by Outer. Outer creates the world's most comfortable and durable outdoor furniture made from proprietary fabrics that are both eco-friendly and water stain, fade, and mold resistant. This episode is brought to you by Gorgeous. In case you don't already know, Gorgeous is the leading customer support platform built for e-commerce companies. Stay tuned to hear from Alexandra Collis, the Director of Customer Experience for Princess Polly, an online fashion powerhouse, to hear how Gorgeous enables Princess Polly to manage all of their customer service channels in one place. Stay tuned for some special offers from our amazing sponsors exclusively for Stairway to CEO listeners later in the show. Hello, everyone. It's Lee Green, and welcome back to the Stairway to CEO podcast. It's my mission to bring you real, honest, and unfiltered interviews with some of the most innovative founders and CEOs from all walks of life. We'll talk about their climb to the top, their stumbles along the way, and the steps they took to get them to where they are. So tune in to get inspired, listen to some real talk, and enjoy the show. Welcome to episode 98 of the Stairway to CEO podcast. I'm your host, Lee Green, and today I spoke with Craig Shearley, the CEO of Yasso. Founded in 2009 by kindergarten best friends Amanda and Drew, Yasso was the first to market frozen Greek yogurt bars. Under Craig's leadership as CEO over the past two years, Yasso has become the second fastest growing snack brand with over $150 million in retail sales. In this episode, Craig shares with us his career journey from growing up in Buffalo, New York as the second youngest of five, to becoming the first in his family to leave his hometown and attend an Ivy League university, to landing a job in brand management at SC Johnson, to leading the plant-based foods and beverages division at White Wave Foods for brands including Silk and So Delicious, to meeting the founders of Yasso in 2017 to explore a board role opportunity. He talks with us about the key to being influential, why it's important for your team to debate the how, but agree to the what, and some signals founders should look for if they're considering a shift away from the CEO seat. If you like what you're hearing on the Stairway to CEO podcast, don't forget to click subscribe to get updates on when we publish new episodes every Tuesday morning, or you can check us out online at stairwaytoceo.com. Until next time, I hope you enjoy this episode. Craig, thank you so much for being on the show today. I'm really excited to hear your story and becoming CEO of Yasso. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I look forward to it. So um, where are you from originally? I grew up uh, in North Tonawanda, New York. It's uh, outside of Buffalo, in between Buffalo and Niagara Falls. I uh, grew up there in uh, snowy uh, parts of the New York, and I'm uh, one of five. I'm the second youngest in the family. You know, uh, I would call it a, a classic uh, blue collar, uh, you know, both parents working upbringing where kind of latchkey kids with a ton of adventure. My siblings and I were all 
less than a year and a half apart. So we were stacked right on top of each other. My poor mother, um, you know, carting five kids around <laughs> all under the age of six at one moment in her life. But that's, you know, I always had a friend to play with, with my, with my brothers, which was fantastic. I was, it was never a lonely childhood for sure. In addition to that, we, you know, we had that, you know, that neighborhood of, uh, of homes up right on top of each other where everybody had three to four or five kids in the house. So I had tons of, of kids to adventure with. So yeah, my upbringing was filled with adventure and playing in the woods all day with a peanut butter and jelly sandwich in my back pocket and come home when the lights came on. And uh, you know, that's kind of my, my formative years there. That's awesome. And what did you want to be when you grew up? Did you know at the time when you were little what a CEO even was? No. I mean, I, I had no idea what business was, let alone <laughs> CEO. Um, you know, I, I, I have to tell you, I really didn't come upon it even deep into college um, as to kind of what I want to do, what I wanted to be. You know, I knew early on I loved the element of hard work um, and the outcome of what hard work uh, looked like. And, you know, so those are my early jobs. It was you know, in Buffalo, New York, you were, you know, you always had the opportunity to shove a lot of driveways. And, you know, my three friends and I um, equipped with shovels, and that was our winter job. And, you know, I would almost OCD like, um, you know, do that driveway until it was perfect. Even when it was filling back up with snow, I would go back and kind of retrace my steps and make sure we gave them the perfect driveway. And, you know, we left it open ended as to what they paid us. But, that kind of, you know, first three winters when I was the age of eight, nine, and 10 is where we really started kind of getting the quality work and the effort. Where do you think that attention to detail comes from? You know, you're looking at every little snowflake that touches the, the driveway, like, oh, we got to get it, got to get it off there. I just felt like the cleaner, the more quality, the more likelihood we'll get paid better. And maybe there's some chocolate chip cookies and hot cocoa at the end of it. Uh, and, you know, it resulted in, you know, we had 10 to 11 clients, quote unquote, and they would call us back every time it snowed and it created more clients. So it was the first time that like quality of work, repeat customers and, you know, and, and there's something special at the end of it, like a hot cocoa, make it even more special. So my friends just, you know, I drove them nuts that I would try to chip away every piece of ice in the driveway, <laughs> take more time than was necessary. It certainly didn't work well on a hourly basis, um, but felt good about the quality of work. And that led to a, a landscaping job, similar concept um, in high school that I really loved the transformation of that yard and all the sweat we put into it over a week. And that beginning picture and that ending picture was more valuable to me than what they paid me. Just like, look at what we just did to that yard. Wow. Yeah. That's pretty cool. So you were able to appreciate kind of the hard work you put into something. It makes me think of uh, my dad, you know, had two daughters, me and my sister, and he was always looking for one of our guy friends to help him rake the yard or shovel snow or anything. And my poor guy friends would get hired, not even poor. My, they overpaid him. They overpaid my friends by far. And my, cause my mom would be like, you're only giving them $10 an hour. Okay, fine. I'll give them 20, you know? And it's like back in the day, that was a lot for per hour. So they'd leave with like 200 bucks cash plus free lunch and my mom was making cookies and the whole thing but <laughs> yeah. yeah that's funny that you give me got... the cookies give me the lemonade and I was good I was good just <laughs> let me work on your yard yeah so 
I really never had because my, you know, my parents had, you know, they weren't in business per se. And, and I never had mentors in the neighborhood or role models in the neighborhood. And it really wasn't, you know, until well into college, I, my, I started off at Cornell as a meteorologist and a physics major. And, you know, for the love of weather and the love of numbers. And then, you know, by my sophomore year, realizing that I was competing I'm on a bell curve with, you know, 24 year olds that are driving kind of nuclear subs around. I was finding my way on the wrong side of the bell curve, which I quickly then decided, you know, maybe my use of numbers can be applied elsewhere. Started applying, you know, finance, accounting, et cetera. Started getting involved in marketing classes, then eventually built up the business degree. And, you know, it wasn't until I had an internship opportunity, and this is when, you know, early nineties when wall street was, you know, everybody was attracted to that. If you had a finance degree, um, I had an internship opportunity in Japan to work in an investment bank and really thought I would love it. And then it ended up just grinding the summer away, 80 hour weeks, really no joy out of it. Just getting, you know, doing yen equity derivatives day in, day out. And, um, um, didn't find a lot of joy in that job. And luckily and this is where luck comes into it. My marketing professor, Colonel Cornell, um, visited me in Japan and had a long sit down with me and just started talking. It's the first moment I ever had a career discussion with anybody and started laying out options for me and kind of my skill set, my passions and kind of lay out an opportunity for me to take a look at marketing. And, you know, that started with that fall semester where I was his teaching assistant and started getting deeper in the marketing curriculum. And then um, he connected me with the CEO of SC Johnson, Bill Perez, uh, for a breakfast. And I really, at that moment, had no idea who this person to the right to me was, why I wanted to be talking to him in that moment. And, you know, really not a lot of knowledge or he really didn't know what marketing was in that moment. But I was connected to this person and just, you know, as the CEO for him to take an hour and a half and sit down with me, this person has no idea what brand management was and then lifted him up for an opportunity as an undergrad, brought him out to SC Johnson with all, you know, the, the classic grad students and gave him an opportunity um, to go into classic marketing. And, you know, upon my visit to SC Johnson, I just met a wonderful set of people um, it was the type of environment that I felt that I could really connect with in terms of team, um, building a business, building a brand, but having that mentorship moment of a CEO betting on me, I wanted to then bet on him. So that was the first CEO you ever met? That's the first CEO I've ever met. So which one do you think is the, I like to think of people in our lives that make such a significant, help us kind of get to that next level as game changers. Would you consider the marketing professor your game changer or the CEO or both? They're both. I mean, first was a took me to the right path. My, my marketing professor giving me the chance to be the teaching assistant. And in that teaching assistant role, I was teaching uh, the class about Glade and one of the major brands at SC Johnson, which then led to meeting uh, the stepping stone to meeting the CEO, which I had no idea what his role was, but he was just a very nice man giving me breakfast because I couldn't afford it in that moment. <laughs> and, you know, all along the way, you know, he saw something in me that I never knew I had in myself that he just 
I, I felt uh, almost guardian angel, like just kind of bring me along for those first formative steps. And I tripped uh, and I had really, um, you know, had had to catch up to those MBA students. Uh, and, you know, he created the environment for me to um, create the confidence um, for me to kind of lift myself up and jump in the stream with all of them. Wow, that's awesome. So what did your, so I'm just curious, kind of a little bit more of your background, because I'm, this person had such a huge impact. You went to this incredible school, you know, Cornell is incredible. And, but your background sounds like, you, what did your parents do? And it sounds like, yeah, how did you get over to Cornell? I'm wondering, I guess I always imagine people that go to these Ivy League schools, they've got tons of money, tons of connections. How could this possibly be the first CEO you're meeting? You know, like, what, what are we not hearing here? Yeah, well, <laughs> I, um, you know, wasn't the valedictorian. I wasn't the number two. I was a good student um, and it worked hard. But, you know, my parents were, my dad was, uh, worked on a line at Chevrolet in my hometown uh, for his whole life. And, you know, I saw the essence of hard work. Uh, he would wake up at four in the morning. Sometimes I would see my mom preparing lunch for him and I would sit down and have a tea with him at 4.30 and out the door by five. And then repeat and repeat. And, you know, in addition to that, that my dad supplemented his salary with he was um, the chief umpire in New York State at the time. So he had come home 3.30, go right back out the door, and then he'd be umpiring till 7 o'clock and, you know, repeat that 3.65. And my mom was a shipping clerk at a, a local company. So, you know, we needed both of those salaries, obviously, to get a family of five. And, you know, within the five, four of us were all athletes. We ate our way through that refrigerator every darn day. Um, and so, you know, there was that uh, in terms of, you know, that um, kind of role model I had uh, in my mom and dad, just whatever it took to get us through it. And, you know, I think the way I broke through is, you know, I found my way through athletics um, and, and football. So I went to Cornell uh, playing football and, you know, good student, um, good athlete with football really broke me through. And, you know, it was it was that and, you know, I got to hand it to my brothers because they're all incredible athletes and I just wanted to be better than them. <laughs> and I want to make my mark. You're a little and, competitive. <laughs> yeah. And my dad was, and his brothers were, and, you know, there was this folklore in the whole town of the Sheasley family and like how athletic they were. And it really created this, you know, element of like, I just want to make my own mark. And, you know, with that, you know, I did. And, you know, I was the first in my family and even, you know, in my dad's brothers to really kind of move out of town. And, I had opportunities uh, across the Ivy League and 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 some other one AA schools to play football, but I definitely wanted to stick within the Ivy League. And I chose Cornell because my um, high school sweetheart that I just met at the time, um, I wanted to be at least three hours drive uh, from home and ended up a good bet because that uh, high school sweetheart is currently my wife. Oh so. my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> That's sweet. That's yes. awesome. That is so cool. So some fortunate steps there. And, you know, um, I think it was just watching how much my parents worked to even to put me through to that moment um, to get me into Cornell and to support that. And then I wanted to make my mark. I wanted to, you know, part of that, whatever that Sheasley folklore was, I wanted to be part of that chapter. So you were the first in your family to attend an Ivy League school. 
What was that like for you? You know, stepping out of that campus, it was a different world to me. And I was so different from everybody else I had um, experienced there socioeconomically. And from starting with my roommate in college, whose dad was the president of a bank, to the right and left of me was the son of the CEO of Marriott. And then down further the hall, daughters of the CEOs of supermarkets across the Northeast. So that was my shock. And, you know, then seeing what wealth looked like up close for the first time and not on TV. And, you know, they have the cars and all new furniture and the perfect computer. And, you know, I didn't show up with any of that. It actually moved from shock to I was a bit embarrassed of my background. And then it kind of started turning into from shock to shame. I'll give you a perfect example, you know, in conversations around where they are going for fall break or spring break. And they're talking about a club med that I never even heard of, never knew about the Bahamas or the Caribbean and those vacation options. And literally my only way home was to sell my college books, get on a Greyhound bus for the $50 that I was able to secure and go home for fall break or spring break. So that was my vacation. And, you know, <laughs> I actually ran out of books to sell by my spring semester. So five trips home on the Greyhound. And, and that was kind of the comparison. And it really was present, my roommate down the hall. And I had an intense jealousy of, of what I saw. And I, I wanted to go home. I just, I wanted to wrap it up, get back to people that had the same shared values, beliefs, and background that I had. So I was more comfortable because I was, I was way out of my world and I was looking for comfort in that moment. Yeah. Well, at least you had a place to kind of go to, to feel kind of back home and normal. I'm thinking about growing my growing up and in, in going to a private school. And I, the only reason we could go to a private school was because my great grandmother had saved money for us to go. So we could not afford otherwise to be there. And you could feel that every day. And that was throughout elementary school, middle school, high school, you know, every kid had the, the bigger house, the, the fancier cars, you know, we had our up and down moments because my dad's job, but yeah, it's interesting to feel that. Yeah, you feel the difference. It was present every day. And I, I just never saw wealth up close like that. I read about it. I heard about it. And then I was living with it. And I just, I was always, I'm embarrassed. I would never tell my mother and father this, but um, there was moments of being ashamed of my background. And what shifted for you from feeling ashamed to feeling proud? So, you know, all the way through my uh, second semester, sophomore year, I was really battling my parents to go back to the University of Buffalo. I have many written letters as to why they would never accept that. So it was really, I shifted, kind of took the competitiveness I had in athletics and said, I, I can make a difference here. And first, you know, my parents put everything they could and had. And I just think about what my dad and mom earned versus what it cost. And I had to make them proud and turn this into something good. So my feelings of shame and embarrassment became, I'm going to make accomplishments here and I'm going to put my energy into being competitive. And in my mind, I was the underdog. They had all, I had nothing. And I'm going to have to work much, much harder than them to just pull up and then pull ahead. So this is really the first time that I ever really decide I'm going to pour my competitive, competitiveness into my academics. 
not uh, just the athletics. And so it's also the first time I started thinking loosely about business. You know, as you recall, I, was, I entered as a meteorologist and a physics major. And it's the first time I started pivoting towards business because I saw it. My roommate's dad was a president of a bank. You know, everybody up and down the hall were somehow um, involved in the business field. So I felt that that was something I could apply myself to. And I, and I really started to thrive in those classes. They started making sense to me. And I, I felt a sense of winning, literally better grades than the peer set to those that I built up in my own mind, whether right or wrong, that, you know, I was the underdog, they were advantage, I got to catch up. And so full throttle on the grades, you know, dial forward to that first semester junior year is the first time I hit the dean's list. And then I stayed on the dean's list from that point forward. And I, I got to tell you, I was, I was a 2.5 to 2.7 student before that. It did help that I didn't have any books left because I sold them all to get to the Greenhound tickets back to Buffalo. So that forced the discipline of me to actually, I had to go to every class and to supplement my learning. I had to get to the library for hours on end. And so all of that stuff came together. And then I started getting a discipline and a virtuous cycle of reward and pride that just fed itself and it kept clicking. Wow. That's a really cool story. I knew there was something there. I'm glad I dug for that. Thank you. Thank you for digging. <laughs> I, I never, I really never told that story about the why behind it. So it was interesting to talk to you about it. Yeah. Well, that's because I feel like a lot of parents, especially in that, you know, kind of really with five kids and these working around the clock and just trying to put food on the table. I think a lot of families that would be like, yeah, maybe you should choose another school. <laughs> you know, we can afford here. You know? Oh, they pushed it. I mean, you know, we were coming out of, we had days of supplementing with powdered milk just to get through some of the hard times. And you know, the fact that my parents could find a way to push me in every school I looked at, they didn't turn it down. They were, you know, they were not um, the inexpensive uh, community colleges. Yeah. Did you get a scholarship as part of your football playing? We did. They, they, they can supplement as Ivy League um, as, you know, at, and based on need. And, you know, my family had need. Well, that's amazing. That's such an inspiring story. And I love that you wanted to make your mark. I think that, you know, it sounds like you were a competitive athlete and that competitiveness has helped you with your success. So let's talk about, you know, so you, you're um, working at SC Johnson, you got in, you started working as a brand manager. You were there for a really long time. I was, to, I was 16 years. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And it was, you know, at the moment, I never, again, just like I never thought about business. I never really thought about another company. I was just having so much fun working my way through a fantastic company. The marketing curriculum is a fantastic and, you know, brand management, brand management, I would say is the best training to run a company, run a business, build a brand. And, you know, that's what I was doing. It was the formative early days of you know, running brands like Raid and Windex and scrubbing bubbles and off repellents and then Glade. And, you know, you're running that like your company and all the fundamentals of building the brand, the financials, you know, you're picking all that up. And then, you know, after kind of working my way through there, I then um, had an opportunity to um, go run our home care platform in Europe. And that was, I was at the age of, it was early, it was 32. It's one of those roles that watch out what you're asking for. 
because I was, you know, all of a sudden in this role where, you know, as more command control before that, now I'm in a highly influencing role where I have all these tenured general managers of the age of 40, 50, and many, many more years than I've had. And here comes this young whippersnapper of 32 coming in, trying to get something done there. And it's actually one of my kind of lessons learned. Uh, it was a, a, probably one of the most uh, formative experiences I had, uh, you know, being of that age and trying to determine how to get stuff done through others. How does that happen? What's the secret sauce? Um, walk in their footsteps, know who they are, know their business, understand what they're trying to get out of, uh, you know, even beyond the business, um, out of their life. And, you know, I took the opposite approach at first. You know, I had great success of driving my agenda and teams had to deliver because they reported to me. Uh, and then I'm in this environment of, you know, now I have these GMs that I have to influence. And, you know, I had started the same way I always started. Here's my plan. It's well thought out. Let's go get it. And you're going to want to go get it because you're going to get rewarded monetarily for going to get it. But um, what I never did, and I learned a valuable lesson from my president there. He said, you need to walk a thousand stores a thousand days with these general managers before you can put a plan out like that. And you know, the result, my first year, it was really the first year in my career that I really <laughs> did not deliver close, A, what I thought I could do and B, what my president needed me to do. And it, it really was because I did not walk in their shoes and I did not sit down to get to know the general manager of France and the general manager of England and the general manager of Germany. Um, I put out a plan, which I thought was smart and it was, it was smart but it was not getting supported. And, you know, we stumbled and the learning was I had to take a lot more time to get to know them first, get to know their business second, and really getting to know what they wanted to get done versus I brought my agenda over the top on them. Which seems like the natural thing to do, right? Just, hey guys, this is the plan. Let's do it. Get them all riled up, you know, get them excited. It was more, is yeah, yeah. Sometimes great vision and great thinking, it's, that's not, that's not the most important part of it. Um, people, uh, people and how they're going to feel when they're brought along is important and, and sharing that vision. And, and, and that's, was the first time that I really discovered that, which is uh, make it more about them versus about you and what you want to get done. Yeah, that's a good, that's good advice. I think for leading a team for sure. So you were there for a really long time. Why'd you leave? Well, then while I was in Europe, I had a call and I was starting to discover kind of really when I'm at my best and it took me a long time. And I'm honestly, I'm still working through that. Uh, but I had a phone call from who was then the CEO of White Wave Foods and they were just starting to bring these brands together, Silk brand, the Horizon brand. Uh, and I basically put that call off until um, I finished my assignment there in Europe, which was about a year later. So um, about probably two weeks after coming back um, from um, England, um, I met with the executive recruiter, which then two weeks after that, I was meeting with uh, Joe Scalzo and Greg Engels, uh, who were kind of building this roll-up plan at White Wave. And 
uh, they had me at the very beginning when I just, you know, really understood what they're trying to do, which is, you know, bring a lot of talent together to bring these brands together and move from what is then a small startup type company to make them a scaled, large, best, um, better for you company in the world. And that was the aspiration. And I had the opportunity to lead a passion brand of mine, which was non-dairy silk. And I jumped at it. I heard the vision. I met Joe Scalzo again, and I met Greg Engels, and they were very, it was very familiar to me, like meeting Bill Perez as other keystone people in my lives of having such an audacious vision and believing in me uh, of coming from something like S.E. Johnson that I can go deliver on that vision for them. So they made a bet on me. I then didn't even have my boxes unpacked from Europe. They were basically landed in the garage and I just redirected them to Boulder, Colorado. And, you know, I joined um, White Wave in 2008. And, you know, what started as running the soy business on silk, one of what I think the biggest accomplishments uh, was just transforming that to a, a powerful plant-based nutrition brand. Even before the word plant-based was popular, and this is back in 2009, uh, 13 years ago, when we were really starting to, you know, move our business from what was a soy brand. And, you know, all the history of soy, it was had its heyday. And I took the brand when it started like a falling knife. It was, I came in and it was declining um, after prior years of growing 10, 20%. So we were almost forced to reposition and transform that brand. And then from there came almond and coconut and everything we can make in terms of delicious plant-based food and then the yogurt business and then we started acquiring so delicious um came in i was leading that acquisition we then bought vega nutritionals and supplement business really against the agenda of building you know the global plant-based powerhouse and we did that and we did that and um, is probably what I feel is one of my, from a president standpoint, one of my biggest accomplishments, taking a $300 million declining soy business. By the time we were acquired by Dan in a $1.2 billion plant-based powerhouse platform. And that's where I really cut my teeth on just aggressive scaling a business and bringing along a company in a purposeful way. You know, I was very intentional on that business. You had to believe in the, the, you know, better for you and better for the planet. You know, you had to believe in that. And, you know, if you were a dairy person, we have dairy businesses, but I really needed you to believe in the tenets of, of plant-based. And um, it, it was uh, probably one of the most pinnacle moments of my career, um, just for what it meant to me personally and what it meant to the team. Yeah. You know, I'm looking, you know, 16 years at SC Johnson and then what, eight years at White Wave, you've stayed at these places so long. And I'm thinking, you know, there's no such thing as smooth sailing in any job. So let's talk about how do you approach conflict or how do you think about resolving conflicts at work? I'll answer that question uh, in, in two different ways. Um, one um, it's, it's first, do we ag agree to what we're trying to get done on the business? Um, we, can, uh, we can debate the how, but let's agree to the what first. And, you know, I've had conflicts, um, you know, even agreeing to the what sometimes. But if I can get everybody to kind of align on the grand vision and goals, then we can debate and align around the how. And, you know, specific to, I'll just go back to the, the 
the, the soy business turnaround. You know, we had a business which, you know, my CEO at the time, Joe Scalzo, you know, it was the jewel of the crown, he called it. And they all reminded me of that. And there was a lot of debate when we wanted to transform that business because of its decline to something bigger, something different. There was many in the camp of uh, it's soy and you just got to focus on soy. And, you know, despite all the negative news on soy, (laughs) you just got to keep hammering on that soy business until you turn it around. You know, where I was in the camp, we got to make it more about powerful plant-based nutrition and soy is just an ingredient. So I wasn't even getting agreement to the what for a while. And we debated it for 12 months. And there were some hard debates. And there was moments I felt I was going to lose my job pushing that debate so hard. But luckily, the evidence started collecting that there is only one way. And we got to focus on the brand silk, not soy. And we need to transform that business in a way that um, retains our leadership and builds a powerful plant-based nutrition brand instead of an ingredient brand. And so over time, we we're able to bring people along, but, you know, we weren't agreeing to the what up front and you just got to, you know, if you believe in that conviction, you fight for it. And I was willing to, I was willing to go down and be fired for that conviction because at the end of the day, I'm going to die with my plan and no one else's. Um, and everybody's going to forget if they didn't agree to it or not, it's going to be my plan in the end. So um, I felt, you know, you had to fight for that. And then with the how, that's where this flexibility and that's where you're working with team members to kind of help enable a better outcome, which is there's a lot of different paths to that goal. I have one way in and this is how I work with my Yasso team currently. I intentionally brought in a lot of great leadership here. You know, I'm going to put a firm, firm position on what we're going to do, but they are talented enough to tell me how to get there. And I might even build on that, but I'm probably going to take their approach before I take my approach. And, you know, again, I'd like a vote um, and I'm definitely going to vote on the what, but, you know, they need to own the how and that's where the ownership and the apartment comes in. And that's where I feel I can lift my team up. And now we're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsors. Have you ever experienced lost sales due to downtime caused by a corrupt CSV, malicious attack, or rogue third-party app? Even if it hasn't happened yet, it doesn't mean that it won't happen. That's why brands like Pier 1 Import, Lord & Taylor, Hasbro, and Staples use Rewind to keep their store protected. Rewind gives you peace of mind, protects your data, and saves you time and money by easily restoring your data, automatically backing up and keeping a record of every change you make. Get a 30-day free trial with Rewind today by going to rewind.io slash stairway to CEO. That's R-E-W-I-N-D dot I-O slash stairway to CEO. Spring is in the air, which means summer will be here in no time. But is your patio or backyard ready for action? With Outer, you can get your outdoor space decked out with the best looking sustainable sofas, chairs, coffee tables, eco-friendly rugs, and don't forget their celebrity favorite, bug shield blanket to keep those mosquitoes away. 
Want to check it out for yourself? Browse over a thousand outer customers' backyards online and visit a neighborhood showroom in your own neighborhood to experience outer products in person before you decide to buy. And when you decide to buy, you can get $200 off on furniture purchases by using the code STAIRWAY200 on liveouter.com. That's $200 off amazing furniture purchases with the promo code STAIRWAY200 on liveouter.com. I am Alexandria Collis, Director of Customer Experience for Princess Polly. I'm focused on our strategy and innovation in the CX department here at Princess Polly. I have a quote and I always tell our CX leaders that customer experience is the heart of an organization and we pump the blood and deliver the oxygen to the vital organs in the business to help them thrive and grow stronger. The gorgeous platform allows our agents a seamless place to just do it all. We are really there for the customer every step of the way if they want. Our customers expect quality and efficiency where they are. So the real question is, how do you get quality and efficiency across every single platform? And then once you have it, how do you maintain it? And I believe that with the Gorgeous platform, we can do that. If you're interested in learning more about Gorgeous, go to gorgeous.com and mention podcast for two months free. Thank you so much to our amazing sponsors. I hope you're able to take advantage of these exclusive deals designed just for you. Now let's get back to the show. What else makes a great leader? or even just a CEO, what, what qualities do you think make up a great CEO? Hire talent, the team first, like you, you can't do it alone. And I, I think it's, you know, what I've learned in the CEO role, it can be the most lonely job. And, you know, you have to be sure in order to do the, how the way you want the, how to be done, you got to hire talent. And so I think that's the first most important thing to get done. And, you know, I don't mean hiring through references in a 30, minute, one hour interview. I mean, do your homework uh, and make sure you are pulling quality people. Ideally, people that you've worked with or seen them in situations that are similar to the situation you're going to be in now and in the future. So I would say that is number one. And then um, make sure you have um, uh, kind of the system set. So plans without a system um, is going to be, you're going to run out the rails very quick. And I've had some failed experiences with you know, having fantastic plans, trying to push my playbook because it worked before without really checking the system underneath it. And, you know, by system, I mean, you know, do you have the infrastructure people? You know, are these people talented enough, experienced enough to deliver the plan you have on the table that you just had your board buy into? Do you have the processes that enable that plan? Are those going to be completely new processes, whether infrastructure, um, IT, whatever those processes look like? Uh, and then, you know, I've sometimes found sometimes you got the motivation. So you got the gas in that team. And I've, I've taken over uh, acquired businesses and one was Vega. It was the exact opposite. Incredible plan without the system underneath to support it. You know, so imagine... Uh, this company went through all the way through a fantastic sale to White Wave, and that was their pinnacle moment. They've finished. They've achieved that milestone. They sold for over half a billion dollars. So you have 100 people in that company that all had a wealth creation moment. They were done. <laughs> <laughs> right? They're like, I'm going to be on the beach. I'll see you later. <laughs> we're, we're done. And, you know, so here I'm coming in, picking that up as part of that plant-based platform saying, we're not done. We just bought this business because, you know, our strategic goal is we gotta, we're going to double it. And are you guys with me or what? And here we go. 
And so for those first six months, you know, I really never checked the vehicle. You know, I had the roadmap. I had the road destination where we wanted to go again, really clearly laid out doing the homework. You know, I never realized that the people in the front passenger seat were going to jump my leadership team because they already had their moment of a payout. They hit their moment. I never realized that that team, just the whole company just worked their tail off. I'm getting to that point and they were out of gas. They were out of gas. Burnout. They're like, we're done. We put in our time. <laughs> yeah. Like, what are you going to give us? That's, that's, you know, we don't we haven't already achieved. And, you know, and then we just didn't have the, the right car to get kind of take us to the destination we wanted to. And so I had to kind of step back those first six months and really reassess the talent and kind of, can we get to where we need to get to? I had to really revisit the culture and the values of the company and kind of down to the person, um, reframe it for them. And the reframe was, you know, you joined this company to, to kind of have a global impact. You were just bought by a large company to give you the resources to have a global impact. So let's go have a global impact, not just sell a company. That's transactional. That's not purposeful. So I was able to really work on the heart versus the head and kind of sharing in deeper values. And, you know, the company had a great, great culture before that and great set of values, but I think it went deeper and having an impact with them and the impact the business can have in this world. And then, you know, working with them and now this is your moment for career growth. You know, as we grow the way we want to grow, you will grow with it. This is not just about transaction in the business and now you're stuck in this accounting role for the rest of that time. I'm going to grow your career with that. So really it was about kind of, kind of refueling that car, filling those tires back up. And, you know, the result was we did truly get back on track. And, you know, what I felt was one of our, you know, again, I, I felt fantastic about this accomplishment. You know, when a company takes over a small company, you can just blow that culture up and, you'll never bring it back. And you hear all those war stories about it was never the same and never felt the same. So, you know, we had historically a Vega before we acquired it, always been a great company to work for in the rank 20 or 30 small companies in Canada under hundred people. By the time we went through this transformation, um, 18 months later, we were the number 10 company to work for. And two years later, we are the number one company in Canada to work for um, small companies under hundred people. So that to me was the moment, like the gas, we filled it up. We really kind of worked that hard. We got that culture pumping the way it should, got the right people back on board. And then, you know, in the end, you know, we overachieved our business result. I mean, we doubled that business from the point we acquired it. You know, it's so interesting to hear you talk. And I'm wondering, is this something you feel like you just kind of stumbled into? Or do you kind of think to yourself, I actually really love this work. Huh. It's funny. I stumbled into business. I stumbled into marketing. I am now more overt about the type of work I like now. And it is these purposeful brands that I, you know, I can shape a culture of people with shared values. What you can do with that, you know, you can blow your plans away, whatever you put on paper. So that is where I am at my best. And it took me a while to figure that out. I mean, it took me, boy, I'm still working on that a bit. Even up to five years ago, I wasn't really finding that joy. 
in terms of that right environment where it's purposeful work, where it's a company where I really have autonomy to get done what I want to get done. And then bringing in the people, the people I feel can share in those values, that purpose that can unlock a big growth agenda. So when I bring all of those together, that autonomy, that purposefulness, shared values, and an aggressive growth agenda, I'm at my best. And that's what I figured out over time. And and then I think underneath that is, I think that people within that company are at their best too. And so after, what is it called? White Wave and kind of working with uh, Vega Nutritionals, you were at Amplify Snacks as global COO and president. And Amplify Snacks is, you know, they've got some cool brands like Skinny Pop Popcorn, which is really yummy. I guess, tell us about your time there and how did you discover Yasso? How did that opportunity come about? Yeah, so I, um, after Danone uh, bought our white wave business, you know, I was, you know, again, consistent with the point of know where I'm at my best. I'm not at my best at large company. I'm at my best at building smaller companies. And so that was Amplify Snacks. Um, they were looking to get back on track. Yeah, fantastic brands, uh, just a fantastic thesis in terms of being the leading snacking company. And, you know, my CFO at White Wave and I um, jumped at the opportunity to build something similar to what we had at White Wave you know, bring these uh, brands together, which were beautiful brands and make them bigger um, and move from a smaller company to a scaled larger company. I think it was just dumb luck or maybe we just, uh, <laughs> maybe it was just right timing. But, you know, within six months, we were acquired by Hershey um, after we joined that company. So it was, uh, you know, literally we put our first imprint on here's where we'll go with the business over the next three years presented that uh, plan to the board and then quickly within that time frame offers were already being solicited from companies and you know by um, the close of that year um, acquired by Hershey similar to Dannon I kind of uh, transitioned my way um, you know transitioned the business to Hershey Hershey leadership and then transitioned out and it was actually even before that time that my um, engagement with Yasso started. So Drew Harrington and, and Amanda Klein, I met at Expo West. Uh, boy, that would have been back in 2017. I was still a Vega at that time. And at the time, it was for a board role. And, you know, we s just sat down for breakfast at Expo. And I knew a bit about um, Amanda and Drew and kind of uh, through the industry. And, you know, just to talk a bit about them is, is the first reason I was interested in even taking the board role was those two. And, you know, their story is one of resilience and grit, like any founder, but beyond that, and I think what sets them apart is um, they're, they're not just the will to win, but their authenticity and how they do it. And they're just real people. And, this was important for me, you know, in, in kind of looking not just board role, and then I'll talk about, you know, why I assume the CEO role, but their approach is different from other founders I saw in brands we acquired. And important for me was, you know, when things got tough, do they want to shoot you in the trench, jump out of the trench, or are they in the trench with you? And those two are in the trench with you. And they're going to find a way to work through the toughest stuff with you, and they're going to help. And if you don't want their help, they'll back out. They knew when to help and when not to help and what real quote unquote help looked like. 
what is what do you mean by that? What does real help look like versus, I guess you mean like someone who says that they want to help and then don't really help? <laughs> well, there's help which is swooping in and being disruptive. Uh, there is help which is I just want to I want to work on the fanciful things that that I enjoy, like I want to talk about the color on your packaging versus I want to talk about foundational stuff like culture and how I can help you with talent building. So that's what quote unquote help is. Um, you don't want them swooping in unexpected. Um, you don't want them ever to work on the things that your assistant brand manager should be working on. Um, and you want them with you consistently and, and um, confidently um, and predictably. And I find um, in other relationships I've seen is swooping un unpredictably, not understanding the lines, um, who does what. And I felt a set of, I felt confidence with Drew and Amanda that, you know, um, I didn't see across a, a full founder set typically um, as I, as you know, in acquiring brands and working with other brands. How'd the conversation go from board member to CEO opportunity? Yeah, it's interesting. I think they knew at the time. Um, <laughs> so this is 2017. And it wasn't until about 18 months later after, well, actually it was happening during the Amplify transition to Hershey um, that they started talking to me about assuming a larger CEO role. And, you know, like any kind of moment in a brand's history, there is a, a moment that you have to consider, you know, I'm, I'm no longer leveraging my strengths. Um, and we have to kind of look at what type of talent we need to bring in. And this, again, speaks to the, the kind of will to win and the authenticity of, of Drew and Amanda. They called it right at the right moment. And, you know, they were kind of running into some challenges with scaling that brand beyond that kind of $50 million mark. I call it about $75 million at retail. So we started having conversations about the CEO role. I was still down in Austin, Texas. And... You know, I had one prerequisite, which is that I'd only do it if I could lead it out of Boulder, Colorado. I've, I've already had too many moves. I was really starting to disrupt the family after three moves in four years. And they, without hesitation, said we would move the, we would move the company for you. So they had a company of 27 people. They're called 30 people in, in Quincy outside of Boston. And their will to win just showed in on the spot, um, giving me that opportunity and then allowing me to build my team from scratch in Boulder, Colorado, which really put everything together for me in terms of uh, my sweet spot, in terms of where I get the greatest joy is working with people I wanna work with that I know can do what we need to get done. And doing it in my hometown was special uh, of Boulder, Colorado. So again, I think it really talks to Drew and Amanda, you know, imagine all the founders you have talked to in the past, taking their brand, their baby and moving it outside of their backyard. Yeah, no, I think most founders would be like, no, I'm not doing that. <laughs> You're coming to us. Yeah. And, and they did it intentionally to separate it so they wouldn't want to swoop in when they shouldn't swoop in. They did it intentionally. They knew who they were. And um, I think that just tells you how special um, um, that that moment was and who they are. And, you know, from there, you know, we had a lot of accountability. We just ripped the company from one city into another. 
you know, it was game on right out of the gate. So that's a lot of pressure on you, right? Like that was a lot of, yeah, that was a lot of pressure. Yeah. So, you know, and I committed to what I could get done here and it was, they had a just a beautiful brand and what they built was something distinct in the market. And real quick, I'm just curious at any moment, convincing these founders to move everything to where you are and do it kind of your way in what you have in mind with your people at any point where you like, Oh, wow, this is kind of a lot I'm putting on. And uh, can I pull this off? Yes. <laughs> in the, there's two moments. Um, you know, I, I put a pretty audacious plan on the table, which is I could double this business, at least double it in, in three years. And they were a bit behind on their schedule. So they had um, been partially bought uh, um, out by a private equity team, uh, Casanea. And they fell a bit behind the business plan they had in place. And for reasons of, you know, the new products weren't sticking. They weren't getting the distribution they wanted. But underneath it, what I saw in a lot of brands, you know, that I've been involved in and acquiring was leading brand and repeat leading brand on loyalty, the best tasting brand in the category. And what you just experienced was it was uncompromising taste, yet it was lower calories and had better, better health and nutrition attributes than regular novelties and ice cream. So, you know, I saw all that to unpack and I felt I've had the playbook in the past to get after that stuff. So, you know, there was a nervous moment of the transition of first, you know, we almost burnt the boats right away. We're moving. And I still didn't have the team locked in place. So we've declared we're moving and I had to quickly get the talent. And that was first thing to get done, you know, to who are the people I can get in my direct reports that have been in this environment before that have the courage and tenacity to grow, double the business in two to three years. And they know how to get that done. So, you know, the first hire, um, was our head of manufacturing, who is a scrapper. And he's also been in large company. And that's pretty consistent attribute that I was looking for was they've seen the best of what big looks like, but they, they are scrappers and they've worked in the best of small and uh, scaling brands and scaling companies. Right. So they know how to build as much as they've seen what it looks like when it's all built. Yeah. They know what great looks like and they know how to get there, but they've been through the path to get there too was important. And so across the board, you know, first was nailed on the leadership team. First, it was the head of manufacturing, head of sales, um, my CFO, and then marketing. So finally, that was the first moment of, okay, at least got the team. <laughs> and then we're going to build underneath that. And then, you know, from there, phase one was just get them uh, building block fundamentals. Um, one was they're cash starved and margin poor. And I had to get that fixed even before I got the full team in place. And, and you know, I think it's a fallacy in a business that margin comes later. I think margin matters now. And it's the most important metric I look at. And so we worked that aggressively, you know, from a what was previously a low 20s, unable to support the infrastructure of the business, what now is a mid 40. Now we have cash that we don't have to take on any outside cash to support our own build out. The next big piece was you know, just building the fundamentals of distribution and earning the velocities of that distribution you have on your business. And, you know, velocity to me is the number one metric of health of business. It's not store count. It's not your distribution. It's not your purchase orders. It's in the footprint you have is your velocity stronger than your competitive set. 
And that means velocity is how often are people coming back to buy your product off the shelf? Yeah. What's the term of that distribution? How much does it turn per week, per month, per year? So how fast is that, that distribution you have turning? Right. How fast is it getting off the shelf basically, right? Correct. So that, so first kind of, you know, phase was also velocity basis and focusing on kind of earning the distribution we're in. So how did you, I'm just curious with velocity, how did you improve velocity then? What did you guys do to improve that? The marketer we brought in uh, was absolutely fantastic at that part of the funnel. So I call that kind of the bottom of the funnel, that conversion part and kind of really understanding the tactics um, that work within the retailers we were in. So, you know, we had a pretty healthy marketing budget but it's just more optimizing that mix. And, you know, there's programs there that um, we could really unlock and did unlock in that first year or two. And that also worked its way over towards um, innovation. You know, Drew and Amanda always, always built fantastic products, the best tasting products. And the challenge was always in the execution of those at retail, in the marketing and what we had to prove to ourselves that we were going to get the next one perfect. And so it was very important for us to be more than a dessert brand. We wanted to be more than things that are sold on a stick. <laughs> and we had to migrate that brand from dessert to snacking. So the first was to, you know, let's have a successful launch. It started with chocolate coated premium. Think of, of, of Magnum. That was first successful. We then proved that out. We took that same playbook and then launched a sandwich platform. So now we're starting to get momentum, not just on our base business velocity, but on our innovation platform as we're building that out. And now you'll see that we're getting aggressive on snacking. We're launching what is called a Popables platform. So think under 60 calories, um, um, you know, almost like mochi type format, um, chocolate covered Popables. So we're starting to work our way towards much more aggressive uh, migration towards snacking and other snacking occasions. So we had to first prove that out. And then what you're going to see next is a very aggressive marketing agenda now, which we have the right distribution footprint. We now have the right platforms. Um, all the food maintains the gold standard we have within Yasso. And now it's about really unlocking that household penetration and awareness behind the business, which is what you're going to see happen here over the next four weeks. Nice. That's awesome. And so, you know, we were talking earlier, kind of before we started recording about this kind of founder to the CEO transition, right? For founders bringing on a new CEO and, and, you know, there's a episode I've done a few episodes um, with CEOs and even founders that, that, that transition has already happened. I think you were mentioning you listened to episode 88 with uh, Hillary Peterson from True Botanicals. You know, she's a great founder and recently hired a, a CEO to take over. Um, and letting go of those reins of a company can be really, really challenging. And I'm sure taking on the reins is challenging as well as you're coming in as kind of the newcomer on someone else's kind of business they've spent multiple years kind of building out. So I'm curious, you know, what are some of the things that make or break a CEO transition? Yeah, I, I think I'll take it through the, and that was a fantastic episode, and I'll take it through the CEO lens. I would ask the founders, do your homework. Really do your homework, because the CEO wants you to have done your homework. Just don't um, look at a resume. Don't do reference checks. Go much, much deeper on that. Um, make sure you know what you're getting. And importantly, make sure you know how they work and how they drive alliances 
and how they will end up working with you, not just in the good moments, but in the toughest moments. And I think understanding that up front and through your homeworking is, is important. And what I found in overt conversations then, and I call this kind of phase two, is you know, get real on, on kind of how the transition is going to work. And if there's something that as a founder keeps you passionate and keeps your juice going and that you want to be involved in, put it on the table. Discuss how that's going to go with the CEO and how you manage your way through that. And for instance, I know Drew just absolutely loves packaging, loves it, and he's good at it. And he's also very, very good at the essence of the brand. And as a CEO, I want to leverage that because it gets us to a better spot. It's not about I need to own it and I got the only vote because that's going to sub-optimize the outcome. And for Amanda, she's exceptional at innovating. She's exceptional at building incredible quality, great tasting products. So we feed her that sweet spot still within our business agenda. And we do not cut that off. So by doing that, we get to a better place by keeping them involved. And they still have the involvement they want that gives them energy and joy. And I see no reason to just it's my way or the highway type approach. So I think having honest discussions up front is what gets your juice going, founder? And same thing with the CEO is, you know, where do you feel I've crossed the line and swooped in on you too much? And it's important for the CEO. I would, I would in the trench, shoot him in the trench or jump out of the trench. I think that's important understanding to have in a founder relationship. And I've, you know, I've seen some crumble by, I'm going to shoot you while you're in the trench in the tough moment. And it's, that's not a good place to be as a CEO. And you also don't want to be, they jump out of the trench on you and you're on an island uh, when the stuff gets tough. So you got to flush that stuff out. So I would ask both sides, really do your homework, know each other, know people that know them informally and formally inside of work, outside of work. How are they in the good moments and the tough moments? What do you think is distinct about the CEO role specifically? I'll tell you the, the first feeling as you step into your first one, it can feel lonely. It can feel lonely. The people that used to want to talk to you all the time don't want to talk to you anymore. <laughs> they're like, whoa, whoa, now you're CEO. Okay. Yeah, yeah. we're going to, anything I give you will incriminate me. Um, yeah, it's, right. you know, it's funny. I talked to my um, leadership team about this. Um, you know, I, I, as a CEO, don't treat me like a potted plant. You know, just come in and water me every 30 days and think that's how we're going to operate the best as a business. And it, it took me to discover that when I'm at my best. Uh, versus when I can make my company at the best. And so I had moments of this is a lonely role. This doesn't feel like my president roles, my COO roles, where I have teams and we're just driving that agenda day in, day out. What does this feel like then? What, what is the difference? Because it sounds the same the way you say it, right? Well, it, it, it's not. It's So I think what you have to do is understand how you elevate the company and elevate your team. You got to focus most on that is, is, you know, what is it I can do I don't have tasks that are out in terms of job tasks day in, day out. I now have people tasks and I got to like, how do I unlock them? How do I take, give them more resources, take barriers away, help find them a better way to succeed. So it's, you got to pivot towards that. You have to set up your, your communication forums with them that enable that, you know, am I communicating in a way into the company that is helping unlock their full potential, helping them thrive, helping them feel good about their work. Those are not the things you 
pivoted towards as president and COO, you're operating, just crunch it. Now it's um, how do I make this place thrive? And am I doing the things day in, day out to enable them to do that? Um, starting with your leadership team and then cascading just good communication into the company day in, day out. For founders tuning in, you know, that might be going through maybe you know, their hyper growth phase. What kind of signs do you think founders should look for that might signal it's time to consider bringing on a new CEO? Yeah, first um, in their heart, in their head, um, are they enjoying it still? You know, when, you know, I, I love founders, they always have fight in them. But if the fight is, is leading to the same result and they're stepping backwards, it might be time to look up and say, there might be somebody better to kind of run it from this moment forward. And so are they enjoying the work still? Are they getting the result they want? And then there's usually, you know, there's an interesting kind of scale moment in the size of the brand. So there's this um, kind of zero to 50 million phase, which you know, depending on what category you're in, but within the consumer packaged goods and the food industry I'm in, that's a that's an entrepreneur moment. That's a scale up, and you know, you are working the foundations of entrepreneurship there with good food, distribution, early early marketing agenda, and you're innovating your way to growth. Not as much in terms of the foundations of like setting up incredible margin, cash flow the foundations of the business of scale. And there's a moment at 50 million, and I see this in the brands we've acquired that it asks for something else. You know, now you got to support your own growth through good margin and good cash flow. And, you know, the fact that some, I would say founders believe it'll eventually come, it won't come after that moment. You have to have it in that moment. And I would say even before 50 million, you should be able to support your own growth in that moment. Because if you're taking on too much infrastructure that your margin can't afford, you're going to be met with a pretty hard day at 100 million because you're not going to solve that problem at 100 million. Small problems just get larger in that moment. So I would say as a metric, 50 million is a good time to look up. At 100 million, you're certainly looking at um, what do I want to do with this business now? Do I want someone to really scale this to be a $500 billion brand and that's going to take different expertise or I want to exit in the moment? But I would say, how's the founder feeling and, and kind of are they enjoying it? And then do they feel their skill set properly applied is going to build them to that next milestone and answer it honestly? Yeah. I mean, they might not even know until they get there and they're like, wait a minute. These past few months are have been a little tough or the normal. <laughs> and uh, very consistent with your, your one of your last episodes. Earlier is better because too late by the time you get that kind of new organization in the talent and you're now talking six months, 12 months before they really got their feet under them. Make that call early. Have a transition plan in place, but make that call earlier rather than later because you might wake up and it, you know, it might've slipped back on you in terms of that transition. And then you and I talked about it earlier, just be honest with yourself. Like, you know, can you have someone else take this beautiful brand you built and do what they want with it? And are you going to be okay in that moment? Um, and how are you going to operate? That's a really tough question. I think that's a really tough question as an entrepreneur myself. I'm like, God, I don't, I don't, that day sounds like really hard. Yeah. Yeah. And I would, I would tell you, you know, agreed to the outcome because that's where it starts. Like, what do you both want 
this to be when it grows up? Do you want that baby to go to Harvard? You want that baby to go to Pickett? But by when? How does it need to look? I want it to stay home and never leave the house. That's what I want. Okay. <laughs> then, then, <laughs> then you you and know, you only can make that happen. But I think um, agreeing again to that what is where it all starts. And then if you're not agreeing to that, then you probably have the wrong founder and CEO relationship out of the gate. But underneath that is that how, and then agree to how you want to operate within those strategies and plans to get there. Uh, and But I think some of it falls apart on, you're not even agreeing to the outcome. What do you want this brand business baby to look like when it grows up? If you're, if you're not getting alignment there, good luck on how you're going to get there. Yeah. Well, you've done such an incredible job already at Yasso in just less than three years. The company is the second fastest growing snack brand with $150 million in retail sales. That's huge, massive. You guys donated about 100% of sales to support those impacted by the Marshall Fire in Colorado. That's incredible. You guys have over 18 varieties, flavors, which are all amazing. You sell in almost every retail store. I don't know where you don't sell the product. I oh, even we see have it, a couple. We're chasing that down. <laughs> I see it even in the um, Amazon. There's like, I think it's the first, you know, Amazon grocery store. It's right around the corner from my house here in Woodland Hills. And um, you guys even sell there. <laughs> so, and then you guys recently launched, what, an accelerator. Can you talk a little bit about this um, accelerator that you guys are working on? Yes. Yeah. Great question. Yeah. We are um, fortunate enough. I'll come back if you want in terms of our, our giving platform. Um, Cause I, that means a lot to us in terms of share values in the company, but um, our accelerator, we call it our incubation platforms. And, you know, we originally came into this kind of premise, the founders, um, our private equity team and I, that, you know, we're going to build a larger platform beyond just the also brand. And, you know, really first look at that was doing that through other tuck and acquisitions. And, you know, we were well on our way, deeply exploring and kind of working our way towards acquisition stage on a couple of kind of getting some other like-minded, better for you platforms that complement Yasso. And uh, many of those fell through, um, but we never lost the mission to there's, there's um, space within snacking and novelty that Yasso shouldn't go, that we want to build a Yasso Inc. company that's larger than just the brands we have. So that's um, where the incubator accelerator started. Um, and some of that white space um, was um, in the frozen popsicle category. Um, think of the outshines uh, as, you know, outshine being about 90% of that, what is a very good segment within novelties stands for refreshment. You know, we looked at that through the same lens that Drew and Amanda looked at um, Yasso um, in 2009, which is how could we disrupt that category? Um, what is a brand platform we could launch that is distinct and a challenger brand? And, and what we did was how do we take refreshment to next level? Um, and so think of like liquid IV. So how do we give you enough vitamins and potassium to truly refresh and replenish and hydrate you in that need state moment? And you know, that's the launch of Juve, uh, which stands for rejuvenation. And we are, you know, the incubator is all about a lot of, just like many of the founders um, have a lot of failed starts. And, you know, the incubator is accepting those failed starts and just kind of really aggressively trying to optimize that platform. So we have about five customer partners that allow for us to fast fail, 
optimize. And what we're doing this year is we feel we have it optimized within the customers we're in. Upon it being successful in 22, we're going to launch that one nationally. So you'll see us do that with a couple of other brands through the incubator. Once we get this one through the pipeline, um, we have interest in uh, plant-based non-dairy um, as a white space category and other categories we're evaluating to put through that incubator. Nice. And so um, forgive me if you already made this clear, the incubator, these are brands that you guys are developing in-house. This is your own internal kind of um, launch of new brands, essentially. Correct. Correct. Versus acquisition. You know, initially we started off, let's acquire. Mm -hmm. This goes back to where Drew and Amanda um, get their juice. And so this is a moment where you take your founders and leverage their incredible expertise in this startup moment to innovate. To, to innovate from scratch. And this is, they don't get their energy out of a hundred million dollar business. They get their zero. They want to start at nothing, <laughs> zero to one. So this is an example of let's leverage the full expertise of our foundership and let's go do this. And so we're working on other platforms. Amanda's working on some new snacking platforms as we speak, which is going to break us well out of a dessert frame. That's awesome. Um, I'm excited to try Juve. I hope to see it soon in the Amazon grocery store. I'll get some to you. I I think uh, after this, you'll have a box sent your way. Yes. Awesome. (laughs) I'm excited. So real quick, let's talk about resilience. You know, we only have a few more minutes left. So I'd love to hear how you practice or build resiliency. And then any other kind of, you know, final advice for founders or operators tuning into the show? Yeah, well, the last one is build resilience because you're going to need it. But <laughs> I am, you know, personally, and it's kind of over the years that figured this out. It's kind of a, a head, heart and body. Uh, you know, all three um, kind of give me the resilience I'm looking for, which is, you know, starting with the head, purposeful work matters. Purposeful work gets you through tough moments. And Especially, you know, even beyond yourself, if you have shared values, purposeful work in the company, there's a stronger fight and courage and resilience and grit that comes from that um, versus the I'm going through the day to day job just to accomplish a financial objective. It just if you have it in your heart, it matters more and it creates a level of, of kind of resilience and courage that doesn't exist um, by just, you know, the classic financial objectives I'm trying to achieve. So, and that's important that you share that kind of heart within the company. And I would say, head, stay focused. A lot of stuff is going to come at you to knock you off track. Um, setbacks, hurdles, challenges. Uh, stay relentlessly focused. Um, and I would call it um, kind of realistically optimistic. You know, be a realist. Don't run over the cliff with your plan if your plan should be changed but stay focused on that agenda um, because there's going to be a lot of distractions thrown at you through the way, which could take energy away from you, um, which will take focus away from you and time away from you. Um, So, you know, any setback within that, you know, don't punish the organization. Um, Take it as a lesson learned um, and kind of course correct and keep on that goal. And then I would say body is, is literally body. For me, these roles take a lot of energy. And you got to be healthy and you got to be healthy of body and you got to be healthy of mind. And so, you know, self-care is critical. Do not let the job run you in the gutter because you're going to stay there unless you got the literally the health of mind and body to kind of get out of it. So I'm really 
all about take care of yourself, prioritize that, whether that's a workout, whether that's yoga, swimming, meditation, um, make sure that that's there because you're going to need that. And your team's going to need to feel your energy day in, day out, because sometimes you're going to have to give it to them and you can't give it to them unless you have it. I'm so glad that you said that because I think that that's one of the one of the most underestimated I think qualities of a really great leader is their energy and the only way to maintain positive healthy energy is to be freaking healthy <laughs> and be positive yourself and they're going to need it you're going to have to I, I call it you know you got to give them oxygen you, you know you so you better have a lot of it because you're going to be giving your mass to them every now and then yes right and then you're going to be kind of gagging for air while you're giving it to everybody else so you better have some strong lungs. And the only way to build strong lungs is to maybe work out, eat healthy, stay positive, right? It takes a lot, I think, of self-care um, and caring for yourself to be a really great leader. Self-care for, for certain, 100%. You got to elevate them. Keep yourself elevated as you're doing that. Yep. I love it. Well, Craig, thank you so much for joining me on the show. I really appreciate you taking the time. Congrats on all your success. And I'm excited to see where else you can take Yasso. I love it. Thank you, Lee. Great questions. I love your format. Love your program. Thank you so much for listening to the Stairway to CEO podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Lee Green. And if you have any burning business questions, please feel free to reach us at www.stairwaytoceo.com. We'd love to hear from you. And if you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe to the show, tell your friends, leave us a review and follow us on Instagram at Stairway to CEO. Until next time, guys, keep on climbing.